1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network uh, in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jake Chaninson. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Alice Mardwick, an associate professor of communications at UNC, about her new book, The Private is Political, Network Privacy and Social Media. Alice, welcome to the show.
0: It's great to be here. Thanks.
1: I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself and the work you do.
0: Sure. So I have been studying social media as an academic since 2003. Before that, I worked in the tech industry and I went to graduate school specifically with the idea of exploring computer-mediated communication. And so my work, has taken me in a lot of different areas. My first book was an ethnography of Silicon Valley. My next book is going to be on far right online radicalization. Uh, but what unites all of my work is a deep interest in the sort of shift to communication through commercial social platforms and the types of impact that's had on the way we communicate with other people, the way that we see ourselves and our identities. And the private political is obviously an outgrowth of those interests.
1: How did you come to write The Private is Political?
0: Well, honestly, I was trying to come up with a topic for my second book, and I wasn't feeling particularly inspired. And I had been writing this sort of series of papers on privacy, starting when I was a postdoc. And they started sort of all coalescing around sort of two major issues. The first was this concept of networked privacy that I developed with Dana Boyd um, in an article we wrote for New Media and Society, um, that was an outgrowth of my postdoc work on teenagers and privacy on Facebook. And the second strand was a bunch of really critical articles about marginalization and privacy, about how people who are marginalized in other areas of their lives are they suffer the worst privacy violations, and they also the harms of those violations are usually most impactful on them. And so, I wanted to sort of combine these two strands of scholarship, and I also really wanted to kind of make a big, fat feminist intervention into privacy scholarship in general. Which, even though there's a, there's a plethora of fantastic people working in privacy scholarship who are very critical and very thoughtful, I think the field as a whole hasn't really been impacted that much from critical race theory, feminist theory, and queer theory. And so I wanted to kind of bring all of those together.
1: I'd like to start off about the book at a base level. Not all of our listeners are aware of what exactly privacy means. I was wondering if you could define what it means to you as a researcher and maybe also to your participants.
0: I think the simplest definition of privacy is the right to control how information about yourself flows. So the right to have agency over when and where you reveal information to others um, and That includes things like whether people can see in the windows of your house, do you have privacy on the bus, do you have privacy at work, and also who do you reveal information to as well as what we think about as the sort of larger concept of digital privacy, which is a little bit different because social media and big data technologies have really altered the way that information flows. But ultimately, I think for most of my participants, privacy was about control over their information.
1: One thing I really appreciate in this book was the history you give on the origin of privacy. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how gender norms are tied to the creation of privacy in the United States.
0: Sure. So this came from the work of a number of other scholars, um, and I was really inspired when I read Anita Allen's original piece, How Privacy Got Its Gender, which looks at the sort of the most cited law review article of all time, um, the the Right to Privacy, uh, the Brandeis article. And this article is very much seeped in sort of what we might think of as gilded age norms, where there was a upper middle class ideal of the private sphere and the public sphere that was very gendered. Um, it was sort of rooted in the cult of true womanhood, which was, again, sort of an upper middle class white, obviously, Northeastern ideal, that women were sort of the guardians of the domestic sphere of the home, that they sort of held on to morality, that they were sort of responsible for inculcating their husbands and children into this morality. But as part of that, they weren't supposed to participate in public life. So what Anita Allen does in her piece is she sort of shows how these gendered norms played Really deeply into um, the the Brandeis piece and the sort of modern concept of the right to privacy. In that, you know, when we think about who is entitled to privacy, it was people who were moving from the domestic sphere into the public sphere, which was men. Um, and again, these norms, when we think about them, are really specific: people of color, women of color, and women in, and white women have very different expectations of privacy in the public and private spheres. Uh, Even for white women, if they were sort of ensconced in the home, that home could be a place of surveillance. It could be a place of abuse. It could be a place where they didn't sort of enjoy, you know, a man's home is his castle, this idea of ultimate privacy. A lot of people are surveilled um, and watched within their houses. And at the time, even though there were lots of women, like domestic workers, And women who worked in factories and things like that. uh, For upper middle class women, there was this assumption that you didn't work outside the home. And so there wasn't access to the public sphere. And by sort of breaking all of this down, we see that a lot of the early privacy legislation was really concerned with violation of genteel women's privacy. It was about should portraits of women be used on advertising? Can newspapers print Uh, pictures of socialites, things like that. And what you end up seeing is that some of the earliest privacy legislation is supposed to protect the gentility and domesticity of women. But there were a lot of very sort of innovative, perhaps, or spirited women who did not live their life in adherence to these norms, who were able to sort of use those stereotypes to their own, you know, to their own benefit by saying, well, look, I am a modest woman. You can't use my visage in, in this product because it would violate my modesty, even if really they didn't want it done for a variety of other reasons. And I think that these gendered, assu- these gendered and raced assumptions about privacy have sort of continued through the ages, even as our conception of privacy has
1: changed. Fast forwarding to today, um, what is networked privacy?
0: So networked privacy is the fact that we no longer have individual control over our privacy as a result of social media and big data technologies. These technologies exist to connect disparate pieces of information. They are, as Wendy Chun says, they are leaky. They are leaky by design. They are supposed to leak. They are supposed to connect things. And When privacy exists in this sort of networked space, even if you have meticulous control over information that you provide about yourself online or off, it's still able to spread without your consent. People are social beings and they talk about each other and they do that in person as well as online. So even if you never post a photo on Facebook, it's very likely that some of your friends or family have or that you may have appeared in the background of a photo or something like that. And now that we have complex facial recognition technologies, those photos can be identified even if they aren't posted by somebody who's tagged you. So the idea of networked privacy is that data is connected through social technologies and big data technologies, and that removes our individual control over information.
1: How do legal and technical protections fall short of protecting users these days with uh, network privacy in mind?
0: So in terms of social technologies, generally there's this Presumption that you are in charge of protecting your privacy, that if your privacy is broached, it's because you didn't do a good enough job protecting it. So you didn't configure your Facebook settings correctly. You reused the same password on two different sites. You didn't use a password manager. You You know, you use social media when you shouldn't have. I was interviewed by a journalist the other day, and he asked me what privacy protections I engage in. And I said that I used a password manager, and I use a 1Password. And he immediately began castigating me, saying that I can't believe that you store your passwords in the cloud. How can you do that? You should be running a private home network and storing your passwords in an encrypted file that's only accessible in your home. And I'm like, nobody does that. Like, I'm a privacy scholar, and I don't even do that. The expectations for what we're supposed to do to protect our privacy are completely unrealistic. And even if you adhered to the absolute best practice of every cybersecurity expert in the world, the most paranoid person ever, they would probably still fail. Um, And so I have this concept of privacy work in the book, which is one of the concepts I am most proud of, which is sort of the labor that people do to attempt to achieve their desired level of privacy. And we're constantly told that we have to do this privacy work, that we must do this privacy work. And when whatever amount of privacy work we do inevitably fails, we're then blamed for it. When the real blame should go to the you know, the tech companies that are harvesting data and the U.S. government who have been completely unable to pass any kind of comprehensive data privacy legislation. And when they do propose data privacy legislation, it's usually sort of rooted in moral panics or it's completely, you know, not tied to the reality of modern technology. So this presumption that we have individual control has really undermined our ability to achieve privacy for everybody.
1: I'm so glad you mentioned privacy work because this was one of my favorite concepts that I got from your book. I was wondering if you could tell us um, where you came up with the idea of privacy work and, and a few examples of privacy work that you found throughout your research.
0: Sure. So I had written a couple of papers with Esther Hargitay and we were using these like really clunky terms like privacy protective attitudes and behaviors, which doesn't exactly like roll off the tongue. Um, and while I was working on the book, I was reading, uh, this really fantastic book, um, by, uh, Fiona Vera Gray called the right amount of panic. And that's a book where she talks about safety work. And it's about the, the work that women and girls and sort of femme presenting people do to keep themselves safe. Like the idea that you're always looking, you know, should you have your headphones in? Who's sitting next to you on the bus? Like, is it dark out? You're always kind of making this calculus to ma- to protect yourself. And then I started thinking about the work on invisible labor and the invisibilizing of labor. And there's like this great tradition of feminist sociologists in the 70s and 80s talking about how certain types of labor are strategically made invisible. Um, so emotional labor, relational maintenance, housework that there's sort of these types of labor that aren't recognized as work. And I'm not super invested in the distinction between work and labor, but I thought the idea of privacy work as something that we do that takes time and effort, that can be really stressful, that can even be expensive, that is totally uncompensated. And not only that, it's not even acknowledged that we do it. That was a sort of light bulb moment to me. So, compare, so being able to sort of synthesize these literatures together. And even though privacy work is by no means uh, confined to just women, like every single person does privacy work. Um, I, I really felt that this, feminine, this feminist literature was very inspiring in helping me think through these. In terms of examples, what is so interesting is that generally there's this attitude that people don't care about privacy. And if you use social media or you use social technologies, you definitely don't care about privacy. And I just found that was completely untrue. You know, I interviewed more than 80 people for this book, and there wasn't a single person in the book who didn't engage in privacy work. Um, So I'll give one example. There was a, a woman I interviewed as part of my study on LGBTQ people and privacy work. Um, She was a lesbian married to a woman. They had two kids. They lived in sort of a suburban home. And when I interviewed her about social media, she came across as somebody who really didn't do much. Like she didn't know what any of her privacy settings were. She let her wife set them up. She didn't really keep track of her passwords. You know, she would have sort of probably been written off by a lot of privacy researchers as somebody who didn't care about privacy. But when I talked to her for longer, I found out that there had been this sort of dramatic incident in her household where her mother-in-law, who was living with her family, had been reading she and her wife's private texts because she had found an iPad that the texts were being synced to, and she had access to all these texts. And this woman was really dealing with the ramifications of this. She felt horribly violated. She felt that her privacy had been completely harmed. And as a result, she had bought these, like, to to sort of catch the mother-in-law, she had bought these little spy cameras off Amazon and set them up around the house so that she could see what her mother-in-law was doing. And this was really profound to me because it showed the kind of lengths that people will go to to try to protect their privacy. But it shows that those don't always map to what privacy researchers think of privacy work. Um, Another person I interviewed was a homeless person, and they, had, uh, they were a kind of atheist, pansexual, sort of artistic person, but their family was very religious, Southern Baptist, conservative Southerners. And even though their family didn't give them a lot of uh, support, they did give them a little bit of support. Like every now and then they'd slip them like 50 bucks or they'd let them sleep on a couch. And this was really important to the participant who I called Jazz. And as a result, Jazz had created two completely separate internet worlds. Uh, They had a Facebook account, a Twitter account, and an email account with their sort of internet name or their pseudonym. And then they had a Facebook account, a Twitter account, and an email address with their sort of birth name and their gender they were assigned at birth. And they kept these completely separate. Um, They never posted from the wrong account. They constantly were auditing the accounts to see who was friends with who. They were super, super careful about it. And that's a level of caution and care, I think, that most people don't have to do. But because the stakes were so high for them, they felt like this was the type of privacy work they had to do to maintain their privacy. At the same time, where they felt most comfortable was at Starbucks. They felt that that was a place where they had I don't know if they had privacy, but they felt comfortable being themselves. They could use a bathroom there. They didn't feel surveilled. Um, And that doesn't map at all to our sort of understanding of the public sphere and the private sphere or the public and the private where we typically talk about these things. So I think privacy work helped me get at some of these nuances and subtleties in the way that people live privacy as opposed to this sort of very clinical or legal definition of what people must do to protect their privacy.
1: And speaking of how people live privacy, how is privacy unequally distributed?
0: So when we think of privacy, there's this sort of presumption that you're talking about upper middle class people. So you live in a house, you work in an office, you drive a car to work. But those things aren't true for a large percentage of the population. You know, a lot of people take public transit, which has cameras on it. A lot of people live in apartments or complexes where they don't have a lot of privacy in the hallways or in the backyard. Maybe they share their room with somebody. Um, And maybe they work in retail where there's a ton of surveillance or on a factory floor or, you know, in a variety of other sort of spaces where there isn't a lot of privacy. So automatically, by virtue of social class you find that middle and upper middle class people have more privacy than poor people. And this is is magnified if you're talking about people who are trying to receive any type of government assistance whatsoever. If you're applying for SNAP benefits or social services or any other type of government assistance, you're often put through the sort of gauntlet of questioning that can be incredibly personal about like your relationships, your sex life, what you eat, how you parent your children, things that a lot of middle and upper middle class people would think of as horribly intrusive, as well as mandatory drug testing, your home can be searched, things like that. And there's a fantastic book by Kiara Bridges called The Poverty of Privacy Rights that really informed my thinking on this area. Um, As well as Virginia Eubanks' book, Automating Inequality, which talks about how big data is incorporated into um, algorithms that determine welfare benefits and how those algorithms are biased because poor people are more likely to be in government databases. They're more likely to have been incarcerated. They're more likely to have police records. They're more likely to have all these other kinds of information that just doesn't necessarily exist for middle and upper middle class people. Um, And this is obviously compounded if you're a person of color, if you're an LGBTQ person, if you're an undocumented immigrant, if you're a Muslim American. There are lots and lots of different social groups that are deemed almost by just their very existence that they don't deserve privacy. Uh, The sort of ideal privacy subject is the white middle class man that Warren and Brandeis were writing about. It doesn't tend to be, you know, a black, queer, trans woman or a, you know, a undocumented uh, Mexican farm worker. And just by virtue of the environments in which those types of people live, they're subject to more privacy violations. And it's harder for them to counter privacy violations when they do happen.
1: Continuing along this fame, would you mind talking about the taxonomy of harassment that you lay out in your book?
0: Sure. So I've been working on harassment for a while, and I kind of shoehorned it into the book a little bit because I really wanted to write about it. Um, And I originally sort of thought about harassment in terms of women, because when I started working on harassment, it was sort of in tandem with Gamergate and harassment by male supremacist groups. And I had this whole theory that women were subject to far more hate and harassment. And that is definitely true in some spheres. Like in the gamer sphere, I describe what I call everyday harassment, which is just like there are some spaces where women just get harassed by virtue of them existing. Um, There's a lot of studies by Jessica Ringrose in the UK and others showing that young women like teenagers and girls often experience harassment every day at school just by virtue of being in school. Um, so that's sort of everyday harassment. Then there's dyadic harassment, which resembles the sort of stalker model of harassment, which is like when one person is harassing another person. So there's somebody who's targeted you, and there's there's harassment, and they're sort of harassing you over a long period of time. And then finally, there's networked harassment, which I've written about extensively elsewhere as well. I have a paper called Morally Motivated Networked Harassment that came out a couple of years ago, and in it, I talk about the idea of when... a a target is harassed by a network of people. And that could be a network united by, you know, they all follow the same YouTuber or they're all connected in a Facebook group or a Discord or a subreddit or something. But the point is that you're getting maybe one or two messages by each of these people, but they add up to like thousands of messages. Now, as I was doing the morally motivated networked harassment project, I was interviewing all these people who had experienced harassment. And what I realized was that even though there is a connection to gender, which I call an attack vector. I'll talk about that in a second. All types of people, all genders, all sexualities, all races uh, suffer from harassment. And that's true across the ideological spectrum. So people on the left harass people on the right, people on the right harass people on the left. And then there's this really big group of harassing incidents that don't map to political categories. So like fandom, for example, is rife with harassment, um, you know, I was talking to a trust and safety manager from a popular chat platform, and I asked them, you know, where do you see the most harassment? And I was sort of expect- expecting that they would be like, oh, incels or like white supremacists, and they were like, cosplay. Cosplay is where we see the most harassing incidents. And so, even though you know, I came into that project, and the chapter is focused on gender, specifically on women's experiences of harassment, women and sort of non-binary genderqueer people, what I found was that harassment is something that happens to people across the spectrum. And harassment is tied to privacy because often harassing incidents or harassing behavior is involved with privacy violations. So doxing, swatting, Uh, what is colloquially known as revenge porn, you know, there's all these things that attempt to embarrass people or to make their lives more difficult that involve revealing formerly private pieces of information about them. Um, And the law is very ill-equipped to deal with any of these types of harassment, even dyadic harassment, which you'd assume you'd be able to use like stalking laws uh, to combat, is still not very strong, very difficult to prove and was not very helpful to the people that I interviewed who had experienced it.
1: What sort of privacy work did these people have to undergo or chose to undergo um, experiencing these different levels of harassment?
0: So the woman that I interviewed who was experiencing dyadic harassment had possibly the most intense privacy work of anyone in the study. She had um, enrolled in the Safe at Home initiative, which has been implemented in a variety of states. It allows victims of stalking, domestic abuse, intimate partner violence, et cetera, to, uh, prevent their address being published in any kind of public database or anything like that. She had, uh, she used a PO box rather than a mailing address. She was changing her, her name so that any information about her that was put online wouldn't be associated with the name that her stalker knew her under. She had a security guard, uh, Escort her to and from her car. Um, she didn't store any information in any browser. She used a clean browser basically every day. I mean, it was really intense. She had never actually re- replied to this person, and she had spoken to the police about them dozens of times. And she basically told me that no matter what, um, the stalker wasn't going to stop until he was dead or she was dead, that she knew no matter what she couldn't protect herself from him that he would always find her and the way that he had originally uh, f- affixed on her was because she was the moderator of a large uh, uh, open source site or open source project and he had sort of run afoul of her moderation efforts and then even though she was using a pseudonym on the site she was doxed by a group of sort of you know former users with grudges. So this story not only talks about harassment, it also talks about network harassment and it talks about the these kinds of online communities where there's a vested effort and a collaborative effort to make the lives of victims really difficult. It's it's a really it's it's really heartbreaking listening to these stories. Um, it was emotionally, probably the most difficult part of the project to do.
1: For sure, that is incredibly difficult even to hear. And I'm hearing it at this point, second, third hand. I was wondering if you could talk about the privacy work on the less extreme end of the spectrum, for example, girls in gamer spaces as well.
0: Sure. So I talked to a bunch of gamer girls. I recruited them through a gamer girl subreddits and things like that. And they were great because not only had they experienced harassment, they had documented all of it because they're online all the time. So they would send me screenshots, they would send me videos, they would send me like these incredibly detailed logs of of things. And one of the biggest privacy protective mechanisms that girl gamers used was they didn't use voice chat unless they were gaming with a group of people that they knew very well. Um, And this was because if they revealed themselves to be a woman in a sort of group gaming situation, they would just get so much sexual harassment and come-ons and slurs that it would make it impossible for them to play. So they used pseudonyms that weren't gendered. Often they would like apologize for using a female character or they'd be like, well, I use a female character, but she's dressed very modestly. Um, Because I think they had internalized this idea that if you're harassed, it's somehow your fault, you know, the blaming the victim mentality. But I thought it was really interesting that the voice was the place that their gender could be revealed. Um, And often not engaging in voice chat made it harder for them to game. It made it harder for them to sort of correspond with their team. And, and, you know, I'm not a gamer, but I assume there's like strategic work as well as sort of general trash talking. Um, And virtually every single female gamer that I interviewed had engaged in this. And it made me think about what Types of information we consider personal. So I interviewed a number of trans people in North Carolina, and one of the women I talked to talked about her voice and how for her, her the sound of her voice was Could be private because she'd found that people would come up to her and ask her a very innocuous question like, oh, do you know what time it is? Like, we don't all have cell phones just because they wanted to hear her voice because they wanted to use that information to judge whether she was cisgender or transgender. And that fascinated me because I think we often think of personal information as being like our social security number, right? Or like our home address or our credit card number. But in so many other situations, there's other things about ourselves that can be very, very personal. Um, And they're not typically afforded that same concern that we take for what's known as personally identifiable information, which is like, you know, the social security number and such.
1: That actually leads really nicely into my next question, which is how do queer folk uh, navigate privacy in online spaces? What sorts of privacy work do they do?
0: Well, it's highly variable because queer people are really different, right? Like I interviewed queer people from like across the socioeconomic spectrum of all different races, gender identities, as well as sexual orientations. Um, And I think because... Queer people experience life in intersectional ways based on their sort of personal attributes and their degrees of marginalization, the amount of privacy work they had to engage in was really different. And I think this is also really different among age cohorts. So a lot of younger people do what I call social segmentation, which goes for like straight people, queer people, whatever, which is where you segment your social life into different apps. So you might use like a particular app or a complete particular chat with like your family you might have like a finsta or a snapchat which is where you put like the super personal stuff uh you the stuff you put on facebook might be like really mundane like a picture of your dog or like you know i like marvel movies or stuff that pretty much nobody is going to take umbrage with um but then for other people there were you know i interviewed one guy who i call carlos who is an un- undocumented immigrant who's a dreamer you know he came to, he under the obama administration he would have been protected by the dream act but when i interviewed him it was during the trump administration which was you know famously anti-immigrant and he felt much less comfortable telling people about his immigration status whereas under the obama administration he had told lots of people about it at the same time he was married to a man and he was extremely open about his sexual orientation and his husband to the point where he like would post pictures of himself at pride and things like that. And he actually wanted to be very openly gay. He didn't want homophobic people in his life. So I think for, whereas I interviewed other people who were very closeted for one reason or another, whether it was because of their family or their partner or some other thing, and they had to be much more careful about the type of information that they revealed. So I don't think you can really make Big generalizations. Um, the one thing I did find was that a lot of people used social media to come out, whether they were coming out as gay or bi or queer or coming out as trans. Um, and the reason they did that was because they wanted to kind of have it in one single place. They wanted to sort of craft a statement, they wanted to put it out there, um, and they wanted absolute control over how the information disseminated. They didn't want it to disseminate through, most of them didn't want sort of rumors. They wanted like a nicely crafted statement, put it on Facebook. Everyone can read it. They can answer all the questions about, you know, their identity at that point um, and then move on. But, you know, I saw a really wide variety of privacy work in the queer population and in the different types of people that I talked to
1: so to wrap all this up you chose the title of this book the private is political i was wondering if you could tell me more what does that mean
0: so i really love this title so obviously it comes out of the second wave statement the personal is political and when second wave feminists used this term what they meant was there's all these issues that well there's kind of two different ways of interpreting it one of them is there's all these issues like rape you know child sexual abuse uh, abortion contraception intimate partner violence that have been ignored or overlooked because they happen to women in the home. And we want to bring these things out into the light. We want to cast light on them. We want to make them public issues. We want to make them issues that are of public discussion that are on people's radar. And the second sort of meaning is that the things that happen to you are not individual. They are part of collective systems and if you're a woman and you're experiencing sexist incidents or you're a person of color and you're experiencing racism those aren't a bunch of individual actions right those are systems there's sy- systems of oppression there are systems of patriarchy there's there're systems of Misogyny, their systems of white supremacy. And with the privatist political, I wanted to call make that call back to second wave feminism. I wanted to acknowledge the very deep feminist work on privacy that has come before us, a lot of which took place during the 80s around the public-private divide, and a lot of which doesn't get a lot of traction, doesn't get cited a lot, it doesn't get talked about a lot. But I also wanted to emphasize the collective over the individual and the fact that privacy is as much of a collective issue, as much of a structural issue as any of these other types of oppression. And that as long as we consider privacy to be something that we can solve individually and we don't imagine collective solutions and we don't think of it as a collective project, we're not going to be able to achieve it. Um, Plus, I just thought it sounded good. Like I thought it kind of rolled off the tongue and sounded snappy.
1: I think it's particularly snappy. <laughs> um, if people, yeah, people want to find this book or find more about your work, where can they go? Um,
0: so they can order the book anywhere books are sold. It's uh, Yale University Press, but it's sold on Amazon, bookshop.org, anything yeah. like that. My website is tiara.org, T-I-A-R-A.org, Tiara like a crown. Um, that has al- almost all of my publications on it, plus lots of extraneous personal information about me. And then on you know, whatever is left of Twitter or X, I should say, um, and threads and Mastodon. I'm at Alice, A l i c e t i a r a. That's great. Alice,
1: thank you so much for coming on the show today.
0: Thanks so much, Jake, for talking to me about my new book.
1: It was my pleasure. Bye now.
0: Bye.